questions and answers. Our first one for the year of 2019 is coming before us tonight. I know that we enjoyed some nine of those last, last year and uh, really look forward, of course, to uh, the consideration touching that same kind of idea even this evening. As always, it's certainly fair to just remind ourselves about the nature and character of these, and it all surrounds or hinges this, the opening part of this slide. In fact, in the case, in regard to these, of course, you get to select the subjects as uh, place those questions in the box or perhaps otherwise share those with me. Then in that case, just use those as the basis for the particular lesson and move through as many of them as we have opportunity to get through during the course of the time allotted to us. Tonight we have about half a dozen questions that have been presented to us and we'll simply look at some of them. Some are pretty short, pretty brief, but always... Whenever it touches the Word of God, we're always excited to give some consideration to it. It's our conviction, of course, always, isn't it, that the Word of God does have truthful answers. And therefore, that's why we even have an interest in doing anything like what we do during this particular time tonight. The opening question, if I may read it, it reads like this. Please explain the Nazarite vow and its significance. Again, please explain the Nazarite vial and its significance. Please be turning to Numbers, the sixth chapter. As we locate that particular chapter and give some thought to the matters that take place there, we find in that chapter the principal description of the Nazarite vial. I've tried to highlight some of those features on the slide for your consideration, but let me highlight a few of them and we'll read at least sections or portions of that chapter as well. First of all, it's certainly fair to say that the Nazarite vow was an exceedingly important part of ancient Israel. As you can see on that slide, it was a vow that an individual could choose to take. But in the taking of it, it had obligations attached to it. You became holy, especially so unto the Lord. You, in fact, made agreement that you'd be separated from many particulars and sources of what was ungodly. In fact, even things that could be regarded as really not so much ungodly, but it was that which had an idea behind it, that God wanted those who took that Nazarite vow to be completely separate from it. Beginning in verse number 1, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made from the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head, until the days be fulfilled in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall be holy, and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. He shall not make himself unclean for his father, or for his mother, for his brother, or for his sister, when they die, because the consecration of his God is upon his head. All the days of his separation... 
He is holy unto the Lord. Now that isn't the end of the description, but I thought that that might provide a sufficient basis for our discussion over the next few moments. You may notice on the slide that this vow, it was something that either a male or a female could take. That is to say, you could choose to bind yourself under the obligations attached to the Nazarite vow. That statement of verse number 2, either man or woman. But certainly as you and I would look further on that slide, may we note this, God did not command it of anyone. When they chose to take it, it was a personal choice that they had made. But along with it came a remarkable set of duties and obligations and responsibilities, some of which I've tried to highlight here. Now, I would say that there were occasions when there were parents who actually made a Nazarite vow obligation for their unborn children. A couple of examples. First, Samson's parents. In Judges 13, even before Manoah's wife gave birth to the baby boy we would call Samson, his parents made obligation that that boy would be a Nazarite all the days of his life. Later on, we also learn that Samuel's mother did that in light of him. It would seem that John the Baptist may also have done the same in regard to him in the New Testament. But again, those were three of what we might call exceptions. The others, it was a person, an individual, who made the choice, who made the decision to bind him or herself under the obligation of the Nazarite vow. You'll notice on the slide, though, but once you made that obligation, going into it, you should understand this. There were some things that had to be true. First, you could never cut your hair. Never. As long as you were within the confines or bound by the nature of that time period you had said. Furthermore, you'll notice that you could never eat of any fruit of the vine tree. You couldn't drink grape juice, you couldn't eat raisins, you couldn't eat grapes, none of it. God outlawed it for the Nazarites. At this point, you might note this, and you were not allowed to make yourself purposefully unclean. Now, you and I remember that there, of course, were situations in which an individual would become unclean by the necessary association with a corpse. In a day long before there were funeral directors, when your father or your mother or your grandparents passed away, you had an obligation or it was your responsibility to help take care of the body. You may have noticed in the reading here, verse number 7, that person that was underneath the Nazarite vow, you were not allowed. You could not make yourself unclean even if your own parents passed away. I believe, among other things, we can see a strong element of conviction. God wanted these individuals, those who were the Nazarites, to lift high the banner of the expectation of purity in every regard for that which God held high and sanctified. And their life was to be an open testimony to that dedication to God. You may notice near the top of that slide, the Nazarites, those who had taken the Nazarite vow, were spoken of so highly in the Old Testament. In Lamentations 4, as well as Amos chapter 2, 
God on that occasion lifted so high the Nazarites, He said all the other people, in fact, they should have respected, they should have honored, and they should have elevated highly the purity and the character of the lives of these people. And yet, they insulted them. They had such disrespect for them. And God says, that's a testimony to what you regard in your life. You don't regard the things that are of me, God said. You rather regard what is your own personal ideas and your own speculations. You should honor the Nazarites and you didn't do it. Maybe it's fair to say as we close that discussion, at least in in that brief way, much more in number six is stated about it. But I would ask that we just make these two quick observations. We all remember that there were times in the book of Numbers especially when an individual would become unclean. And it perhaps was due in no part to anything you had done. Again, think about these examples. There were certain animals that were were unclean. Certain kinds of lizards, for instance. What if there was a lizard that just fell from the roof onto your shoulder? It made you unclean. Now, you didn't plan for the lizard to do that. and You, in fact, didn't arrange it in any way, but yet here you were suffering in light of the nature of that ceremonial uncleanness that was brought about by that event. Well, what would happen if a Nazarite were to suffer this fate? What if in the daily course perhaps you had agreed for the next 60 days I'm going to be subservient to the Nazarite vow? What if 41 days into the 60, something, again, due to no, no choice of yours, makes you unclean? Well, this particular chapter says this, and I've tried to highlight it at the bottom. Note verse 12. And he shall consecrate unto the Lord the days of his separation, and shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering, but the days that were before shall be lost, because his separation was defiled. Those previous 41 days would have been lost. You'd have to start all over. Now, among other things, doesn't that highlight for us perhaps the following set of thoughts? Let's apply at least some principles of it. I know that we don't take a Nazarite vow today. We are under the New Testament and not the Old. But isn't there an interesting principle here? As an individual made ready, I'm going to accept and take the Nazarite vow. And you had to go to the priest to make the proceedings begin. But isn't it true that you had to count the cost? For however long you were intending to be correctly consistent with that Nazarite vow, you had to be ready to count whatever cost that was. For the next 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, for the next year, I'm going to have to stay away from all these unclean things. I'm going to have to refrain in every way from cutting my hair, from the other features characteristic of even the produce of the vine. And certainly it would have meant a great deal for the holiness and the characteristic of what God would be able to do through you. I'd like to suggest at least that principle is valid for us. Must we count the cost as we become a Christian? Luke 14 verses 25 and following demand it. Even Jesus Himself said, as He taught a couple of different statements in that chapter, oh, how vital it is that we count the cost and realize We are the servants of Jesus. We will serve King Jesus. And no matter what others may say or what influences the world may bring, we've got to be as committed as those Nazarites were supposed to have been 
dedicated to stay away from evil, from those influences that are wrong, and to be committed to the Lord. Question number two. As we turn to this particular question, this one, taken again from the Old Testament, and it reads as follows. Please explain the hand under the thigh promise in Genesis 24, verses 2 and 3, and also Genesis 47, verse 29. What was the purpose of placing the hand under the thigh? Was it symbolic? You may want to be turning to that text in Genesis 24 because it is on that occasion that we are led at least to appreciate one of the episodes or one of the examples of that given occurrence. Genesis 24, verses 2 and 3. Let me begin reading in verse 1. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. And the person who wrote the question made a reference to the hand under the thigh. This is by no means the only time, of course, that event occurred in the Old Testament. But you may begin to appreciate the following. We may gain some helpfulness by noting, what's the Hebrew word translated thigh here? Well, probably you're not that surprised. It has to do with the thighs. It has to do with the loins. And as you and I can really perhaps picture, imagine that which was taking place. A person who is taking an oath might well be demanded, you put your hand under my thigh. And you and I might wonder, what did that signify? What would be gained by putting your hand under this individual's thigh and then taking some statement of oath? We may note that in other places of the Old Testament, that same Hebrew word is actually translated offspring as in Genesis 46, verse 26, exact same Hebrew word. May I invite you to note that that particular word came to represent the source of life, or to state another way, the strong foundation attached to what a person was, what a man was to be, what he might will in fact give his dedicated oath to perform. In essence, when Abraham asked his servant, in fact demanded it, when you put your hand under my thigh and you take this oath, you are giving your absolute word in conviction that you will carry it out just as you have promised and that you will do that which I have requested. In a moment as we reflect upon it, you'll notice Abraham made the commandment, don't you take a wife for my son of the daughters of this place. You go back and get a woman of my people, you go back and get a woman proper to be a kind of wife that Isaac will need. Let's look at one more thing. There are other places in the Old Testament where, again, this reference to the thigh, you can clearly see it represented, again, as the source of strength and the reality of the foundation upon which a person's life would be built. In Exodus, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 21, 12, as well as Judges 3.16, both we find that word used in that way in those places. To return back to the one before us, 
aren't you also impressed? When in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with an angel. And the text says that angel touched him in a place. And sure enough, it was his thigh. What happened to Jacob after that event? Well, I've tried to remind you on the slide. It would appear he had a continual limp till the day of his death from that time forward. In other words, when he wrestled with the angel, and that angel touched him in that thigh region, it brought about a lessening of his strength. Again, he walked with a limp from that time forward. As we make that application, let's put all that together. In that ancient era, when you put your hand underneath the thigh and took an oath, you were binding yourself in the highest way. The greatest of convictions relative to your intent to do that which the oath demanded of you. You were more than just giving your word. You were giving the very essence and foundation of your being, your life, relative to your intent to carry out that oath in the words that you were giving. No wonder we can then begin to see then the seriousness with which Abraham touched this subject. And there at the bottom you can see what it was. Abraham by this point had already been given that great promise, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Again, Genesis 22, two chapters earlier. No wonder then Abraham already knew that the great blessing was to come through his seed and his son Isaac needed a wife. But a faithful woman, a woman out of whom the great lineage could ultimately lead to the Christ. You and I know how that record ended. Rebecca was the one that was chosen. And when the offer was made to her, she agreed to go back and marry a man she'd never met. She had a sense of the significance, of the importance of it. And isn't it fascinating to, of course, appreciate the great providence of God in working all of that out? The hand under the thigh. Question number three. As we come to this third question, it reads like this. In Exodus 32, verse 32, Moses mentions a book. Is this the same book mentioned in Revelation? You might want to be turning to Exodus chapter 32. The person who wrote the book made a reference to a book that, in fact, is mentioned in this place. Let me set the stage a bit for us so that we'll not read the whole chapter. The chapter is some 35 verses long. We'll only pick up in a moment with verse 30. But the scene begins, of course, like this. The children of Israel, by this point, had already engaged in those events surrounding the golden calf. Moses had, of course, ascended Mount Sinai, but while he was up there receiving those Ten Commandments and the other laws that God had given, the people were at the base doing the most sensual, the most ungodly, the most idolatrous things. They had made a golden calf and they were worshiping it. And in fact, they were nakedly running around it, engaging in various and sundry sensual sexual things. God told Moses, get down. God knew what they were doing. You may remember Moses broke the tablets as he was coming down the mount. When he saw what they were engaged in doing, when he saw how far they had erred from the very commandments that they'd already been given, and now you notice that that brings us to some quick observations. I've tried to highlight them. 
about 3,000 of them died due to part of the punishment that was placed upon them. Not only that, Moses addressed them and he made these statements. Let me begin reading in verse number 30. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Let's pause there. You'll notice that Moses, as he addressed the people, it was his great desire that he might proceed before God and that he could make atonement for their sin. He was very hopeful that God would receive the message with the idea that again he would offer to them the opportunity of repentance. Verse number 32, Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot out, I'm sorry, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore go now, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. The person who wrote the question again notices that God made reference in His Holy Scriptures to a book. What is this book? Again, specifically, is, the same book, is it the same book mentioned in the book of Revelation? Well, here's some thoughts you might take note about that book. First of all, would you be impressed? I know that there have been some throughout the ages who've asserted Moses or Aaron or perhaps the children of Israel as they put together this book. Please be impressed. That's not the kind of book being described. Could I ask you to note the emphasis again in verse number 32? I pray thee out of thy book. Whose book is it? Moses said it's God's book. And not only that, he said, who wrote it? Which thou hast written. This is a book God had written. Moses, no, neither Aaron, not the children of Israel. God had written this book. Now, as you and I look even further, there are many other times in the Bible when a book, apparently this book, is described. Let's note a few of the references. In Psalm 69, verse number 28, we have reference to, again, a book, but what does it contain? There it does not contain the wicked, but it does contain the names of the righteous. Well, isn't that interesting? So here's a book, again, that God had access to and that God had written, and it has names within it, names of the righteous. Let's study even further. In Isaiah 4, verse 3, we have another reference, again, to the appearance of a book Daniel 12, verse 1, perhaps is one of the clearest. If you like to look at that Daniel 12 passage, listen to the way the book is referenced. Daniel chapter 12, verse number 1. It's an interesting observation that in the very place of that verse it says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, 
And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Written in the book. Keeping that idea in mind, let's jump into the New Testament. In Philippians 4, verse number 3, closing chapter of the Philippian letter, Paul had something rather remarkable to say concerning two women in the congregation at Philippi. Of those two, Paul simply said, I'll begin reading in verse 2, I beseech Euodia and I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. The book of life. Only one passage remains. The Revelation. Would you come with me to Revelation 3? In this case, it was the church at Sardis that was being addressed by Jesus. The church at Sardis. And in that particular description it says, beginning in verse 1 of Revelation 3, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, but thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are written that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they, are, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Same book, not only here in Revelation, as we also saw in Philippians, as we saw in Daniel, as we saw in Exodus. This book is the so-called book of life, and in it, what a great book, for it has in it the names of the saved, the names of the redeemed, the names of those who have been forgiven of their sins, the names of those who are favorably seen in the the eyes of God. Isn't it thrilling to contemplate your name written in a book by the very nature of God Himself? That's the thing Moses referenced. And it's the thing we have found throughout the Word of God. I would suggest, though, that in that discussion of Exodus 32, there does seem to be at least something else worthy of our observation. And it's what I've reserved for the next slide. For this particular question, it seems to me, could well have developed the following. Don't you find it intriguing what Moses said? Again, verse 32, If thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot out, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. What did Moses mean by this? Moses, in such an earnest and intercessory way, pleaded for God to allow the people of Israel to be forgiven, to offer to them the opportunity to have that sin remitted attached to the golden, uh, to the golden calf. But what did Moses especially mean? 
that if thou wilt not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book of life. Was Moses saying that he was willing to go to hell if God was willing to save the children of Israel? Did he mean to say that he was willing to forfeit his own salvation if that's what it took for God to extend to the children of Israel a matter in forgiveness? That's certainly a challenging passage without a doubt. Here are at least some thoughts that you and I might keep in mind as we try to rightly divide it. First of all, as we consider on a number of occasions, there's no question the strong degree to which Moses had feelings for the placement of and the blessing attached to the children of Israel. On many occasions, he approached God knowing their sin and pleaded with God on their behalf. Now, that's no different than here. But the wording that Moses used is certainly very unique. I'd like to offer to you, Paul did something like this in the, in the opening few verses of Romans 9. Paul said, if Israel, if the children of Israel, if the Jewish nation could be saved, he said, I could even count myself as anathema for them. Did Paul mean that he was willing to forever forfeit his own salvation if it would mean the salvation of Israel? It does not seem warranted to think that either instance would demand that interpretation, especially given the following. There are a number of times in the Bible where figures of speech are employed. Perhaps this would be another set of examples to that. Sometimes you and I today use figures of speech. Have you ever used something like perhaps a particular incident or scene comes about and you'd say, I'd give my eye teeth? Well, would you really? Would you and I be happy to allow our teeth to be removed from us if it would mean a certain thing would occur? Probably we're simply using that as a figure of speech. Could it be that both Paul and Moses did it? We know Jesus used figures of speech on several different occasions. In John 21, as well as in other occasions, I would just offer that as a possibility here certainly coupled with a strong element of desire that, God, that Moses had that the children of Israel would be given an opportunity to be forgiven. Could I ask you to notice in verse 34, God did extend the opportunity. He said, My angel will lead you. Now, they did suffer plagues due to this, but God did promise to continue to lead them onward to the land of Canaan, and that He did. Let's go to our next question, question four. This fourth question reads like this. Another very interesting question taken also from the Old Testament. Moses' name was given to him by Pharaoh's daughter. Was Moses then an Egyptian name or was it a Hebrew name? Do you have the sentiment of the question? Let's see if we could develop some of the features concerning the name Moses. Would you be turning to Exodus chapter 2 with me? Exodus chapter 2. In the early chapters of the book of Exodus, we have that rather remarkable record of those incident matters that ultimately would touch the plagues that would follow and the circumstances of God's deliverance of the people by virtue of them. Beginning in verse 5 of Exodus 2, it reads, And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side, and when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. 
And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Now you and I remember that the Pharaoh had, of course, already given word. All the Hebrew baby boys were to be put to death. They were to be drowned in the river. They were not to be allowed to leave. And yet Moses' parents, they saw he was a goodly child. And they just couldn't bring themselves to allow his life to be snuffed out that way. And so you might remember that they put him in a little ark that floated on the Nile River. And of course, they stationed his older sister Miriam at a distance to watch. Well, Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe herself in the river, and her maidens were, of course, making sure that all was well and nothing, of course, would happen to that, that daughter Pharaoh. But you may notice that, of course, they found this ark and the babe that was crying in it. Well, you'll notice that she quickly identified this is one of the Hebrews' children. She knew it wasn't an Egyptian child. She knew that it was not one that would have the nationality of Egypt. It was one of those that were of Hebrew origin. But let's keep on reading. Then said his sister, so this is Miriam, Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? Would you be impressed with the providence of God? Here was a scene again. This was to be the man that would deliver God's people from Egyptian bondage, and yet Pharaoh's daughter found him. And his older sister came, and she struck up a conversation with the daughter of Pharaoh. Hadn't you always been impressed? Those maidens apparently didn't keep the child at distance. Rather, Miriam said, Would you like me to go and find a nurse to take care of this Hebrew baby for you? Pharaoh's daughter didn't disagree. Let's read on. Verse number 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go, giving her permission to go and bring a Hebrew woman to take care of this Hebrew baby. And the maid went and called the child's mother. The baby's mother was the one that would nurse him for some length of time, instilling in him conviction regarding the God of heaven Moses wasn't just going to know about Egyptian gods. He was going to be schooled and trained, instructed and edified in the nature of the ultimate truth of the only living God of heaven. At this point, though, let's now come to the name. Verse number 9, And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, And he became her son, and she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. Here was a woman paid to nurse her own child. When the proper time came, you notice in verses 9 and 10, Moses' mother did the dutiful thing and brought this child to Pharaoh. And now you'll note the name. I would ask you to appreciate this. As you think about the name Moses, M-O-S-E-S is the way that looks in English. There is an ending to that name, the last three letters, S-E-S. I hope that reminds us that that was a rather traditional and frequently occurring ending in the Egyptian language. May I invite you to notice Exodus 1, for example. We have an an example of of an Egyptian word. Verse number 11, for instance, of, of Exodus chapter 1 
Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. Note the ending of the word Ramses. R-A-A-M-S-E-S. That was not at all an atypical or unusual ending in the Egyptian language. I'd like to suggest to you the following. That would seemingly suggest the word Moses ultimately was an Egyptian word. It has the ending characteristic of it. But would you please note this. What does the word mean or what significance does it have? That word relates to the idea of a child. Now you'll notice from the wording in the King James at least, because I drew him out of the water, but really the words much more suggest the idea of child, but its pronunciation is intriguing. The way it sounds is like water. That's what Moses' name would have sounded like. When they pronounced it, it had the sound characteristic of moving water. Well, again, keeping all that in mind, isn't it interesting? Pharaoh's daughter knew where she'd gotten him, and she knew the nationality he was of. I'd like to suggest maybe she had an idea of naming him in a way that reminded not only of the sound of water where she got him, but also the nationality attached to his origin. And I'd say that's another thought about the great providence of God, isn't it? Question number five. As we come to the fifth question, we go now to the New Testament. This was the lesson text for the lesson tonight, 1 John chapter 3. Would you please be turning to that chapter? 1 John chapter 3. The idea behind this question is one that has really offered quite a challenge for many people for a long, long time. In fact, so much so that I thought you and I might tonight at least look at the two verses that offer the greatest element of challenge. First of all, verse number 9 again, 1 John 3. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. That sounds amazing, and it is, because it's the Word of God. But you'll notice that directly says, this person who is born of God cannot sin. Now that word cannot means an absolutely exclusive thing. Something's not possible. You can probably get the idea. Let me at least present a scenario. Here's an individual struggling with some problem. Maybe it's an addiction of some kind. Maybe it's a thought of some matter that keeps coming back. I've asked God to forgive me of this, and I know He has, but I keep doing it again. After a couple of weeks, I fall into weakness. I fall into this problem. And so this person says, 1 John 3, 9 says, If I've been born of God, I can't commit sin. Does this verse mean that I was never baptized correctly? Would this verse mean then that I've never had an attachment in some way to God? For if this is true, why do I keep falling back into this? Turn back a chapter to 1 John 2 verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John says, I'm writing to you that you sin not. 
because I'm falling back into sin, does this mean that I'm not a child of God? Does it mean that this weakness that's mine, I am forever determined and dictated to be a child of the devil? I suspect many a person may have struggled with this, but let's try to remedy this situation. This is not what this person thinks it says. Let's begin perhaps like this. One of the key ideas in this is to appreciate the tense of the verb that it actually is present. The verb tense is, is key in this one. In fact, I might invite you to notice, let's pause and say this. All Christians are going to sin. That's every one of us. We are never going to reach a place of maturity a station in life in which we can say, I no longer commit any sin. That's never going to happen. In fact, 1 John 1, 8 overtly says, if we ever say that, we're liars and the truth is not in us. We are all going to give in to and we're going to become guilty of sins. This text does not teach us that if I commit the slightest sin, I have not been born of God. That's not what the text teaches. In fact, the English standard at the bottom, I've tried to record exactly. I've literally and verbatim quoted the, the English standard. Listen to how it puts it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's, God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That makes the verb tense abundantly plain. Each of us may stumble and fall and commit a sin. We do not go on committing sin. We cannot live a habitual life of ongoing continuous sin and be a child of God. That's impossible. And that's what the text teaches. Are you and I going to momentarily stumble? Are we going to allow thought to cross our mind or perhaps speak a word that we wish we hadn't? Sure we may. This doesn't mean that if I do that, I'm not a child of God. It doesn't mean if I do that, that I was never baptized correctly. But what it means is I cannot keep on living a habitual, continuous, ongoing life of sin. That's what the tense of the verb is teaching. And may I suggest, that helps us understand a great deal, doesn't it? Go back to verse 1 of chapter 2, for example. I read this a moment ago, but isn't this beautiful in light of what we've just learned? My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. The Word of God is given to us that we may implant its teaching in our lives and in our heart to the extent that hopefully we can thus not give in to sin. We can keep things at bay, but let's finish the verse. And if any man sin, when you do stumble, when you do fall, look at the blessing. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You and I as Christians can fall on our knees. We can thus through Christ pray for forgiveness, and we have an advocate with the Father. Again, these verses do not teach that there was something wrong with my baptism, or if I keep falling and stumbling into this. Now certainly that might mean that I could get some additional help somehow. If I keep on falling into this error, may I suggest solicit the assistance of a strong Christian person to help you. Maybe your mate, or if not, an elder. 
perhaps you could say, you know, every time I start to feel like I'm going to give in to this, could I call you? You know, could you talk me through this and give me the necessary strength to overcome it at least for the, for the, next, few, for the, for the next few moments? And I'm sure a faithful Christian person will be happy to help. Maybe you need someone to help you to overcome whatever this particular thing is. But this verse does not teach that there was ever a problem with your baptism or that you were never a child of God. It doesn't teach that at all. One last question. Question number six. This question asks the following. Who were the Roman Caesars ruling during New Testament times? Now, I thought the best way to answer that was just present a listing of some of them. The Roman Empire lasted hundreds of years. I did not list anywhere near all of them. I just began the list with Augustus, and I chose to end it at Trajan. Now, the Roman Empire continued several hundred years after the time of Trajan, and in fact, the first Caesar was not Augustus. There were some others before him, but the question said specifically about New Testament times. So I selected these. You may take note of the dates out to the right. Augustus was the Roman ruler, the Roman Caesar, beginning in 31 B.C., and he ruled all the way until 14 A.D. That means he was ruling when Jesus was born. When the Son of God came into the world, born in that city of Bethlehem, Augustus was the ruler. In fact, the New Testament even says that in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Augustus is said to be the ruling Caesar at that very time. And so even secular history is in perfect accord with it. But as you step down through the listings of some of the next one, notice Tiberius was the second one I listed. He took over at the end of Augustus's reign, and you'll notice he reigned until 37 A.D. Did you notice? He was the ruling Caesar when Jesus was crucified. It was Tiberius. Not only that, he was the ruling Caesar, of course, when the church was born. On the day of Pentecost... It would have been Tiberius. He was the ruling Caesar. But let's look even, even further. Next, we have mention of Caligula. Now, as far as I know, there's not even an indirect reference to Caligula in the New Testament. I, I wasn't able to find one. But when you come to the next one, Claudius, he is mentioned in the New Testament. In Acts 18, verse 2, as well as Acts eleven twenty eight, both make reference to the days of Claudius as the ruling Caesar, of course, on the throne in Rome. Once you pass him, you arrive at Nero, and he certainly has a name that you and I probably well remember. Known to be a paranoid man, a very wicked man, one who instigated an incredible persecution against Christians. Sure enough, that was Nero. I would point out that, and I put this one in parenthesis, in 2 Timothy 4.22, actually the word Nero does occur, but that's actually related to a superscription that actually is attached to a part of the events of that, of that location. I realize that perhaps a lot more detail could be given. I would only direct one more thing in terms of your attention. As you look at the year 69 A.D., notice how tumultuous the Roman Empire had become. Three different Caesars that one year. There was Vitellius, there was Otho, 
There was also Vespasian that began that year. And I might even mention that Galba ended his rule that year. Isn't it interesting that was the same year that the great onslaught in Jerusalem was beginning to happen. The destruction of Jerusalem. I would suggest that's something to remember about the great providence of God and the nature of what was coming on the Jewish nation because they'd put Jesus to death and what was coming on the Roman nation because they had a hand in it. The year 69 AD was a tumultuous one for ancient Rome. Now you'll notice in the years following... I might quickly mention Domitian in 81, ruled all the way to 96. It apparent, that apparently was the time when the book of Revelation was written. And again, Domitian was the ruler at another great time of tremendous persecution against Christians of the first century era. But I think that answered at least the question that was asked. As we come to the next slide, a slide of conclusion if you please. Our goal tonight has merely been to look at a few of these questions that have been asked and to use them to encourage, to use them to remind us about the very nature of the Word of God. As always, if there would be a person in the audience who perhaps would wish to make a public response to the invitation offered by the gospel, we'd be delighted to offer an element in helpfulness. Remember that as an alien child of God, you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins required in Luke 13, 3. You must confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And you must be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, 38, 1 Peter 3, 21. If we could make a point of helpfulness in that regard, what a blessed night it would be. But if there's a wayward child of God that would wish to come back to your first love, don't you know that we would certainly be honored to approach God on your behalf, praying that He would offer forgiveness to you, and He's promised to do that very thing. Tonight, if we could be of help to anyone in the audience, we would encourage you to come now while together we stand and while we sing.